I too want to greet you this morning in Jesus' name, the one that we have come to see what he has for us today, that we might go forth from here better equipped to serve him. It's good to be in the house of the Lord, and I had to think of that song also that we were singing earlier, that we need to pray for each other. And truly, we live in a day and age that if we're not meeting together and praying for each other, I believe we're really missing out on what God has for us. And as we go on, and we'll talk about that a little bit today, I think it behooves us that we are prepared to maybe have some things come into our midst that we're going to need each other. We're going to need each other dearly, and I trust that we'll be able to do that. I also found it interesting that Kevin and the song here talked about teaching, and I thought as I was preparing this message, this is more of a teaching than it is preaching. There is a difference. But I'd like to give you some information today that I hope will help us for some things that I see coming that I think we better be prepared as a individuals and as a body of believers. I also received phone calls that they like for me to just give an update on some things. Well, I had kind of, of on, on prophecy on some end time things, and I had already thought that some of this would apply from the standpoint of what I'm going to share, although it's not necessarily on that, but it's things that are coming because we are in the end times. But yesterday I found it very interesting that uh, Jan Markell from Olive Trees Ministries had given 10 things that she sees that are happening right now that tell us that we are in the end times. So I'd just like to quickly go down through those 10 because one of them is what I'm going to talk about. Number one is the decline of America, and we're seeing that. We see the rush to global government, and the phrase that you are going to see and maybe already have seen is that you will own nothing and be happy. And what they show on that video is just amazing that they would think that the people would accept, but it appears like they will. Number three, government overreach. We are living in a fear-based society. Everything that we hear is to put us to fear so that we can trust the government. Number four, creation is groaning. We see the storms and the floods and the volcanoes and the earthquakes, the weather extremes, another thing that the scripture tells us will take, be more and more prevalent in the end times. Number five is lawlessness. Have you ever seen a time where we are seeing lawlessness even right around us? Number six, the rise of, Rome, of a Romans one mentality. What do I mean by a Romans one mentality? Hearts are darkened. People think that they are wise and they become fools. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. They are filled with unrighteousness. That's a Romans one mentality. That's the time we're living in. Number seven is technology and artificial intelligence. You wouldn't believe unless you've been paying attention. And I think that there's a lot of things going on to keep our minds away from what is actually happening. When it comes to end time prophecy, we are so involved with the things that is going on in our news, as was mentioned last week, I think Kevin shared, that 
we have totally lost track of what is really happening if we, as far as the scripture is concerned. Number eight is wolves among the flock. We see it churches that are basically on speaking of social issues, of the, the critical race theory, and they are leading a, a people that no longer care about sound doctrine. They just want to hear something that's entertaining and will help them get through the day from the standpoint of maybe a joke or two. Number nine is the hatred of Christians, conservatives, and Jews. And I'd just like to read something that was basically said this week by our government. Official government documents say that evangelical Christians are potential terrorists, and some Christian groups are even called hate groups. Christian doctors and nurses are being forced to perform abortions, and a Christian baker has been threatened with prison for not baking a wedding cake for a homosexual couple. Now, a few of those have been going on, but apparently there's more out there. Christians in Colorado, New York, and Kentucky are being forced to go through sensitivity training in order to rehabilitate from their religious beliefs and resulting moral convictions. When communists did such things to American soldiers, we called it brainwashing. American Christians are in the early stages of persecution, and it is increasing. Unfortunately, many will be blindsided by it because few pastors and church leaders are warning about it or preparing believers for it. And that's basically about where my message is today that I would like to talk about. But number 10 that she gave out yesterday was the, the Mideast instability, and that was another thing that I was going to mention. A lot of people wonder uh, about Afghanistan. What happened with Afghanistan is also we're going to pull out of there. We're going to pull out of Iraq by December 31st. What does that do? That does not leave a U.S. presence in the Middle East, and the Middle East is already becoming very unstable, and Israel is alone. But, brothers and sisters, that's exactly what the Bible tells us is going to happen. So are we paying attention? Because it says that Israel, when the Gog Magog War of 38 and 39 happens, it plainly says there that Israel stands alone. Where does their help come from? God. And it's going to be very plain that God is the one that helps them. So, the, so America needs to decline. America needs to be... Uh, not the superpower of the world, and we need to be out of the Middle East, and by December 31st, we will be out according to what's planned at this time. Well, that's the ten things, but I'd like to look at the one this morning, and I've entitled my messages, Are Your Beliefs Preferences or Convictions? Are your beliefs preferences or are they convictions? And we see that in the United States and in the world Certain events are bringing Christians and Christianity more intensely under government scrutiny. By that I mean they're watching us. And I read you what they're saying about us. Now a lot of news is not going to carry that, but that's what's happening out there. It's going to intensify. We may have our convictions severely tested in the very near future. Now I don't believe that we're talking, a lot of people say, well you're talking about the tribulation. No, I'm not. I think we will we will very possibly be in persecution. 
A lot of Christians already are. We have been pretty left out of that in a sense. And yet every day, if you are truly out there sharing something, there are people that look at you sideways. So we're all in persecution to some extent. Is it going to get worse? Yes, I believe it is. And I think it's going to come from our government. And if it comes from our government, it'll come from our neighbors. It'll come from our families. And that's already happening, depending on what subject you want to look at. But you know, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that a person's religious convictions are protected by the First Amendment of the Constitution. But one's preferences are not. Do you have a conviction that's going to stand? Well, we're going to look at that a little bit. But first of all, I want to read to you why the Supreme Court ruled on this and how they came about to the ruling, because I think it'll help us to see where we need to be if we're going to be able to stand. But it's an an account that happened on May the 15th of 1972. It was Wisconsin, the state of Wisconsin versus Yoder. It was a legal case in the Supreme Court. And this is basically what happened. It was uh, Wisconsin's compulsory school attendance law was unconstitutional as applied to the Amish community. This is what the Supreme Court ruled on. Because it violated their First Amendment right to free exercise of religion. The case involves three Amish farmers, Jonas Yoder, Wallace Miller, and Aidan Yutze, who in accordance with their religion refused to enroll their children ages 14 and 15 in public or private schools after they had completed the eighth grade. The state of Wisconsin required pursuant the state, that the state of Wisconsin required that they go to the eighth grade. But after that, the, um, that the children should attend school at least to the age of 16. That's what, that's what the state said. The fathers were found guilty of violating the law, and each was fined $5. A trial in a circuit court upheld the convictions, concluding that the state law was a reasonable and constitutional use of government power. The Supreme Court of Wisconsin, however, found that the application of the law of the Amish violated the First Amendment's free exercise of of religion clause. So on May 15, 1972, the case was argued before the U.S. Supreme Court. In an examination of the Amish, the court found that their religious beliefs and way of life were inseparable and interdependent and not, had, had not been altered in, in fundamentals for centuries. The court went on to conclude that the secondary schooling would expose Amish children to attitudes and values that ran counter to their beliefs and would interfere with both their religious development and their inter- integration into the Amish lifestyle. According to the court, Compelling Amish children to enroll in public or private schools past the eighth grade would have forced them to either abandon belief and be assimilated into society at large or be forced to migrate to some other and more tolerant region. The court rejected Wisconsin's argument that its interest in its system of compulsory education is so compelling that even the established religious practice of the Amish must give way. Finding instead that the absence of one or two additional years of education would neither make the children burdens on society 
nor impair their health or safety. During those years, the Amish children were not inactive, and the court remarked favorably on the Amish alternate mode of continuing informal vocational education. On the basis of these findings, the court ruled that the Wisconsin compulsory school attendance law was not applicable to the Amish under the free exercise clause. Now, why did I read all that? To help those of us who only went to the eighth grade? No. I did go on and get my high school, but that's beside the point. But what the reasons that they came up with as to how they got to this decision is what I want to look at this morning. That they, they, they laid out the groundwork of what each one of us has to do or believe or practice if we say that we have a conviction. They establish the guidelines that, it, that needs to be met. If another case would end up in the U.S. Supreme Court, they would know the steps to follow. First of all, the court stated that one cannot hold a belief unless one can somehow describe that belief. Now, the scripture in 1 Peter 3.15 puts it this way, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man who asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Can you do that? Can I do that? That I can truly be ready to give an answer to every man who asks for the reason of why I believe what I believe. Now, the court does not ask that this person is highly intelligent or that he's a teacher that dots every I's and crosses every T's. That's not what they're saying. But they will not accept hunches, feelings of it seems to me testimony, or, well, that's just the way we do it. The court wants a witness to show thoughtful consideration of his beliefs. Secondly, but more important, the court requires that one show knowledge of his beliefs. The court maintains that belief must be individually and personally held. Now in John 8, we would read where they came to Jesus, Jesus was talking, they came to Jesus, and Jesus reminded them. He, they, they said, well, who do you think you are? We're Abraham's children. And... They said, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would, not, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, one who has given you the truth. I'm putting this in my own words. Abraham didn't do this. He wouldn't have done anything like that. So the court views such people as hiding behind a title. Jesus' opponents here basically said, we are the sons of Abraham. Today, you and I would probably say, I'm a Christian. Okay? The church says this, the church says that. The court says, fine. Now tell us what that means to you. Can I do that? Can I tell a court what that means to me? So when the, the Supreme Court decides the case, they stated that every religious belief falls in two categories, one of two categories either preferences or convictions. 
They said religious preferences are not protected under the Constitution, only religious convictions. And here is a test that delineates the two. First, if a belief can be changed by peer pressure, by family pressure, the threat of a lawsuit, the threat of going to jail, or the threat of death. If it can be changed, it's only a preference. It's not a conviction. Secondly, for a belief to qualify as a conviction, it must be predetermined, non-negotiable, victorious within itself, and demonstrated by a lifestyle. Now let's evaluate ourselves under this. Let's see what this is really saying. How about peer pressure? Anybody familiar with peer pressure? Young people, does peer pressure bother you? You really believe something, but because the group is doing something different, and they say, why can't you do what we're doing? Is it something you're going to hold on to? Or is it something that you say, okay, well, I'll go along with whatever, whatever the rest of you want. That's, that's peer pressure in a, in a group. But what about family? Family pressure. This is one of the strongest pressures, I believe. You know, when Jesus advises his disciples about counting the cost of commitment to him, every person he mentions is a family member. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his what? Father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Family pressure comes in quite prevalent in a lot of times. So is it peer pressure from those around us or is it family pressure? The next one is a fear of lawsuits. Will we change something because... First of all, we don't want to go to law, but it was inter- I'd like to know how the Amish got all the way to the Supreme Court. Somebody had to be pushing that to get it all the way to the Supreme Court. Maybe the state of Wisconsin just automatically does it. I don't know. But we wouldn't go into lawsuits, but we might end up there. And then we're saying, well, we're not going to go to law because I'll lose my reputation or whatever it may be, my job, my property, because of all the costs and all that there. So because of a threat of a lawsuit, and we don't want to start one, don't get me wrong, but it can change our minds. What about jail? Would you really be willing to go to jail for your faith? A lot of people have in the past. Would the pressure of facing jail make you change your beliefs? If so, then your beliefs are preferences, not conviction. What about the pressure of death? The final test is obvious. Will you die for your belief? So do you see the common factor in these? What does your belief mean to you? What are you willing to sacrifice in exercising your belief? If you feel you should do something but have the right not to do it, If you feel you should do something and have the right not to do it, it's merely a preference according to the Supreme Court's test. Therefore, your belief is not protected by the Constitution. The court says that a conviction is a belief you will not change. Why? 
A man must believe that his God requires it of him. That's what they feel. If he creates a conviction, the court believes that it must be a belief that God requires of him. How many things has God required of us that we're willing to change is a question that I would have for all of us. So a belief that is God-centered is a conviction. It's God-centered, it's God-ordered. God has asked us to do it. It is not merely a matter of resolve or dedication, but a matter of believing with all our heart that God requires it of us. The court says that if you hold, that if we hold our beliefs as God-ordered, we will withstand all the above tests. So you think and go back over the ones that I just listed. Are we willing to stand for what we believe? The court says more. A conviction is not something we discover, but something we purpose. It is not something we just happen to run across, but it is something that is part of the very fiber of our personality. This means that a person is not made by a crisis, and a crisis can do a lot of things to us. Just think of the one that we're in now, but that a crisis exposes a person for what he is. How many times have we seen that, that a crisis exposes us for what we really are? The court says our convictions will be purposed as a part of our way of life and the beliefs that we are determined to perform and fulfill. I had to think of the seven ordinances that we have in our faith and practice. How well are we doing those? We believe those are God's order. That's, we have them in there. It was instituted by Christ and the apostles. And I could go on and on. I mean, I think we're all aware of a lot of things that we say we practice, we say we do, but if it came right down to it, would we hold our beliefs? And as I read all this information, I couldn't help but think of the Old Testament story that is very familiar to each one of us, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I like to look at that just a little bit in closing. But we know that King Nebuchadnezzar had made a decree that when the people of the kingdom heard all kinds of music that he was playing, that they were to fall down and worship that idol that he had made. And failure to do so would cause anyone that didn't do it to be thrown into a fiery furnace. And we know that these three boys refused. They did not bow. They did not bend. And they did not burn. Remember the song? When questioned by the king later, their answer is a classic example of conviction versus preference. And we see that in Daniel chapter 3. I'm going to read some verses there. You can turn to it, but I think it's a familiar story with all of us. But in chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O, to the king, o Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Their answer was predetermined, was it not? Verse 16, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. In other words, 
They had already discussed this situation, and their answer was predetermined. Did it start at that point when the king put this idol up? No. Young people, children, it starts when we're young. It starts when we're young and we, we determine what God wants and we determine to live it. And I believe that started long before this with the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <clears throat> so let's start now. If we haven't started, let's start now to be ready to stand for what we believe because the time may come and very soon that we may have to be faced with that. Number two here, we see that it was non-negotiable. And it's kind of interesting, in verse 15, the, the king tries to negotiate with them. He gives them another chance. He offers them a second chance, but they refuse it. Number three, it was victorious within itself. In other words, regardless of the outcome that day, they had won the victory simply by taking a stand. They told the king that God would, would indeed save them, but if he chose not to, they're not going to worship his idol. I say they were winners, either way. Number four, their conviction was demonstrated by their lifestyle. Indeed, their actions were driven by conviction, not by preference. So you may be asking, how does living a life for preference or conviction apply to me? You know, God has given us the power of choice. We can do our thing, our own thing, or we can do his thing, if I can put it that way. To be what I want to be or to be what God wants me to be, that's the question. And I believe that all of these tests we can use as guidelines for our own selves. But everyone knows that even on a witness stand, should we be put on a witness stand, not everyone tells the truth, even after affirming that we will, not everyone tells the truth, not everyone is honest. And though maybe we're not lying outright, many times the truth is bent. But if it's bent, it's not the truth. It's not the truth. So the Supreme Court basically was left with solving this dilemma of discovering how could it determine whether a person was telling the truth about his conviction. The answer was actually very simple. Though a person may twist the truth on the witness stand or when they're being questioned, the truth will always be found where? I don't care how much you lie to me, and tell me that everything is okay, what tells me that it's not? Your actions, your lifestyle. That tells me everything. And that's what the court is saying they can do. Put in another way, the court said what is on the inside of the man will show on the outside. That's what the Supreme Court is saying. And this agrees with Scripture. But those things which proceed out of, the, out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, blasphemies, 
These are the things which defile a man. We see that in Matthew 15. And the court says you have no right to say you have a conviction unless we can somehow see that you live this, that conviction with some consistency. And again, that agrees with the scripture. James says, but someone will say you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. In other words, we can see. It's obvious to see. You have to live that life of conviction with some consistency. Testimony of beliefs without the works to prove them is invalid. So the court says, we want to see your faith in action. If the Bible requires something, it is God-ordered. If it's God-ordered, it should be a conviction. If it's a conviction and God-ordered, not to do it would be what? Sin. Not to do it would be sin. Disobedience to God. Remember? Saul had the same problem. And what did God say about that? Before we state that, we have belief, have a, uh, that our belief is a conviction, we must also be prepared to say the opposite. That if it's opposite of that, it is sin. Last week's bulletin had a phrase in it, and I compliment those who put that, those in there. I find them very interesting and very fitting at times. And last Sunday when I saw this, I had been thinking about this, this message. But it said, the greatest mistake any Christian can make is to substitute his own will for the will of God. Let me read that again. The greatest mistake any Christian can make is to substitute his own will for the will of God. So if we're not doing the God-ordered things, we are not doing the will of God. And like this said, that's a great mistake. Last but not least, I can't help but draw the conclusion that in many of our churches today and also in many individual Christian lives, When it comes to serving the Lord, for many it's not a conviction. It's merely a preference. Are you here this morning because of conviction? Or are you here because of preference or peer pressure or family pressure or fear of something? Our only hope for each one of us as God's people is to once again become people with biblical convictions, biblical convictions that can be seen in our daily lifestyles, so that if the time comes that we have to stand up for them, that all of us can stand because of the indwelling Holy Spirit within us that we are trusting upon and letting him lead us and direct us. So how does my life match up with the written word? Matthew 22, we should love the Lord with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and love thy neighbor as thyself. That is a God-ordered conviction for us, if we want to follow it. Lord bless you.